0: You're tuned into to an extra from Aspen Ideas To Go, a podcast by the Aspen Institute. I'm Tricia Johnson. In this short series, a supplement to our regular show, we're featuring discussions with thought leaders on What Every American Should Know, a project by the Aspen Institute's Citizenship and American Identity Program. The program is tapping the American public and cultural leaders to build a crowdsourced national list of facts and references every American should know. The idea sprung from the 1987 book Cultural Literacy. It laid out 5,000 words and references, a sort of common vocabulary needed to be engaged in the U.S. There was major blowback with critics calling the book racist and sexist, among other things. But it initiated a powerful conversation about what you need to know to navigate American life. Executive Director of the Citizenship and American Identity Program, Eric Liu, says now more than ever, a diversifying U.S. needs a shared base of knowledge but a 21st century sense of civic and cultural literacy must be radically more inclusive. In today's show, Lou speaks with Maria Inajosa. She's Mexican-American and runs Futuro Media Group. It explores the diverse American experience through multimedia journalism. She's also the host and executive producer of Latino USA. It's NPR's only national Latino news and cultural weekly radio program. Here's her conversation with Lou. So, uh,
1: Maria, you know, these conversations we're having are on this broad topic of cultural literacy, what what you think every American should know. And I actually just want to start with you rewinding well before you became a, a famous journalist uh, growing up in Chicago in an immigrant uh, household. Um, how did you come to absorb uh, American culture and American lingo? And how did you form your sense of what every American should know?
2: I was growing up in the United States of America and the Midwest during the 1960s and 70s. So I was like everybody else, you know, I mean, I was watching, you know, in the earlier parts of my life, watching Room 222, <laughs> uh, which was about this super diverse high school class. I was watching the Mod Squad that was also very diverse. I was watching the Brady Bunch wishing I was them. We were watching Meet the Press on Sunday mornings. We were watching 60 Minutes in the evenings. We were watching the evening news every day um, on multiple channels. We only had one TV, but, you know, we weren't, like, dedicated to just only one network.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: My American-ness, oh, and, and of course, all of this in the context also of the major civil rights battles that are going on not only in the country, but very specifically in Chicago. On the south side of Chicago, which is where I was being raised, mm-hmm. my kind of Americanness was very... Full and participatory. My mom took us to a demonstration when I was in the third grade, hmm. so I understood kind of the Americanness and the fact that we were part of it. And and it was actually Martin Luther King who spoke to me as the first person who was a leader who made me feel like maybe I could have a voice in this country. Because point of this story, Eric, is that while I was we were consuming all of that media, I wasn't seeing myself. Ever. <laughs> or anyone like me. I mean, ever. Mm-hmm. So so this notion of being completely immersed in American culture and at the same time being completely invisible was really, that's like the two-track of my life. You know, just to, to give you a context, when West Side Story, the movie, was shown on television for the first time on prime time, and it was a huge deal, um, you know, I had to ask permission from my dad. I think I was 10 or 12 because it was considered very risky to see that movie. But when I did see it, you know, it was a turning point in my life because here on American television, they were singing the song about my name. Hmm. And that that was one of those moments where I was like, oh my God, oh what? Hmm. But but it's again, immersion and absolute invisibility.
1: You know, that... um... That strange combination of those two dynamics, immersion and uh, absolute invisibility, uh, leads some people to uh, simply continue to immerse and accept the invisibility. What was it about uh, uh, your experience that, that made you say, uh, I actually need to uh, change uh, this latter track and, and, and make sure that uh, I'm no longer invisible? At what point did you feel like uh, you could be not only a consumer of the culture, but a creator of it?
2: Many, 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 many years later. <laughs> but many, but many, many, too many years, which is why my message to young people, young Latinos, young people of color, and young people in general, is don't wait so long. Hmm. right? Don't, don't wait so long, and don't wait for the validation. Um, I mean, I think my first foray was when I was doing college radio mm-hmm. um, here in New York City at Columbia University. I was a student at Barnard And I ended up doing a radio show um, called Nueva Cancion y Demas. So it was um, a Latin American music program in Spanish. And I started realizing that, you know, I, not only did I have a voice, but I was giving voice to people and issues that people wanted to hear about in New York. But even then, Eric, even when I was already behind a microphone in, you know, the world's greatest city, New York City, and I had an audience, when my college advisor in my senior year said, well, you know, you know, you should really apply for an internship at NPR. And I was like, Ugh. I mean, I just remember saying, why? And I would never get it. Mm. I mean, I'm not good enough. And she was like, well, what's the matter with you? And I was like, but there's no, like, come on. They've never, there's, I've never heard anyone who sounds like me on their air. Why would I even think about it? Thankfully, she pushed me. And that, I think what I understood then, Eric, was, Tremendous privilege and responsibility, because uh, uh, the truth is I was the first Latina who wasn't, you know, cleaning the offices Mm -hmm. to work um, editorially at NPR headquarters in 1985. I understood, like, wow, okay, I made it here. I understand privilege. I mean, I worked really hard, but here I am. And then it brought out a real sense of responsibility for me to kind of get over whatever insecurities I had. You know, I I talk about forcing myself to raise my hand in those editorial meetings when I really felt like such a fish out of water, Mm. Um, and just forcing myself to raise my hand in those story meetings to say this. And that was when I understood responsibility. Later then, I understood the need for me to have my own voice as a reporter, as a journalist, producer, you know, running my own company, et cetera, et cetera. But those were the beginnings.
1: You know, so many influences that you were rattling off uh, in in describing your childhood uh, formation of your American identity were pop cultural, were fiction in a way. They were television shows. Uh, But tell me more about your sense, uh, uh, again, both as consumer and now as producer, of journalism, of stories that are based on real life uh, and the ways in which uh, journalism of this sort uh, that you're creating now uh, can shape the culture and, sh- and shape other people's sense of what Americanness means.
2: So the journalism that we were consuming—you know, my dad um, subscribed to Time magazine from the day he got to this country, and soon after he became an American citizen. The rest of us in my family were all born in Mexico, and many years later became American citizens. But so, you know, we were watching, as I said, the evening news. We were, um, you know, watching 60 Minutes, but. The truth is, is that there was no kind of journalism even talking about some of the issues that were going on in my, in, in my life. Um, so the media, to me, the journalistic media, seemed to be something that was giving the narrative of, of the life beyond, and that the life beyond my experience of being a Mexican-American you know, immigrant um, on the south side of Chicago, the life beyond that in journalistic terms was more valuable than the life that I was leading. You know, recently I've been giving a lecture where I've been talking a lot about invisibility, and that invisibility has consequences, right? The first Latino journalist that I saw on a national scale was actually Geraldo Rivera. If you remember, he was doing investigative reporting for ABC News. Mm-hmm. He uncovered Willowbrook, um, what was going on with mental um, mental health institutions. He was reporting about heroin addiction in Puerto Rican communities, but, you know, Geraldo was uh, a Puerto Rican guy from New York, you know, and I was this Mexican young woman in in Mexico. So it was a very long time before I saw anything in terms of the world of journalism that might even represent me. Once I understood that I, I had a voice and that I had a place of privilege, and that I had broken through, then it was about making... And, 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 you know, I think it it just really colors the way I approach all of my storytelling. It wasn't just about, okay, great, now I can tell stories about Latinos. Yes, that was great, but, you know, telling Latino stories really are just American stories. Hmm. To me, it was the sensibility of approaching, as I finessed my journalistic voice, it was really kind of at the core of really what Martin Luther King was saying, which is, We all have a voice, and even if I disagree with you, I'm going to be able to engage with you in a respectful manner, right? And I believe that that's part of what I ended up kind of incorporating into my style of journalism, which is a real sense of humility in approaching the stories, understanding that oftentimes people really do feel invisible and therefore maybe distrustful and not understanding how to even speak to a journalist. So there's a lot of humility and there's a lot of not putting myself on this person, right? It's a lot of thankful, being very thankful, filled with gratitude that they are sharing their stories. And most of the time, people saying things like, you mean you care about my story? My story matters? And it's like, yeah, it does.
1: Uh, you've also been very forceful and intentional about uh, use of language uh, for instance, uh, the, the, the phrase that's out there and, and, and used very casually, illegal immigrant, uh, illegals, illegal immigration. Um, you've made a real point of not using that word. And uh, say why and, and, and how that connects to your, your notion both of humanizing the people whose stories are being told, but also the, the power of language to frame uh, how we think of who is us and who is not us.
2: Right. So another term that we don't use at Futuro Media Group is minority. Like you will not hear us reporting about minority groups, or identifying the Latino population as a minority group, um, or the African American population as a minority group. So minority is not a term that you hear or will see in any of our writing, because as I say to people, I never, I've never looked at my kids and said, you know what, kids, you are a member of a minority group. I wouldn't, I don't want to do that. And plus, as we know that Anglo America becomes a numerical minority, wouldn't we want to rethink what that term? has meant for so long. So that's one term we don't use. Another term we don't use, as you correctly mentioned, Eric is illegal. Um, We don't use the term um, to describe an immigrant. The person who taught me never to use the term illegal in front of a descriptor of a human being couldn't be anything more unlike me. And this is Elie Wiesel, who survived the Holocaust. And it was Ellie Riesel, who I met when I was working at CNN in the newsroom, he happened to be there, and I just walked up to and Mr. Riesel, help me to understand my editors here at CNN actually prefer me to use this term, but I'm uncomfortable with this term because of any number of reasons. Can you help me to understand and what to do? And he said, there is no such thing as an illegal human beings. There's no such thing. You may have committed a crime, or in the case of crossing the border without papers, a misdemeanor, but... That doesn't make you an illegal human being. That would mean, and I actually say this in my speeches, um, Eric, that, you know, that would mean that if you, like, got stopped for a traffic violation, you would from now on be called an illegal driver. Or if you didn't pay your taxes when you're, and you got caught, you would be called an illegal taxpayer. No. So you're just a taxpayer who didn't, you know, who committed a crime that, so he said the most poignant words that are so hard to repeat, but of course he said, Maria, The Nazis declared the Jews to be an illegal people. Hmm. We were declared an illegal people. And so that, when I hear that, and and I believe that you're right, the jargon has gone out there. I mean, um, Lou Dobbs was on every single night, every single night for, I don't know, a decade at CNN. saying, you know, illegal aliens are overrunning our borders. So we are very thoughtful about the language that we use, and, and we're probably getting some of it wrong. Um, But all I want to say is, as a journalist, I am completely open to engage in that conversation. And by the way, as we're talking about things that people should know, the whole conversation about Latino, you know, it's genderized, right? You would have to continually say Latino, Latina. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: Um, You know, there are people who now use Latino with um, the at sign at the end, so it incorporates both female and male. And there's a new term that people are using called Latinx. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there are are things that we're not perfect at, but I do want to say that we are open to the flexibility of language because we understand how powerful it can be.
1: I want to close this conversation, Maria, with a a list. As you know, uh, this conversation is part of a broader project that we are doing at the Aspen Institute, uh, asking what every American should know as a matter of cultural, civic, historical, pop-cultural literacy. And so uh, I'm curious, Maria, what are the top 10 things that you think uh, every American should know?
2: Well, this was really painful, to be honest with you, um, Eric, because having to put it down to 10, right? Because (laughs) I could do this now and in an hour, I'd be like, oh, wait, there are a whole (laughs) other 10 that I forgot to include. So, you know, given that context and that there are a lot of things that uh, should be mentioned, but that I'm not going to mention. So, I think the first thing would be, actually, it's based off of a Latino USA program that is up right now, which basically is the hidden history of Latinos in the United States, right? And, and within that hidden history of Latinos, you know, the true story of the Texas Rangers, um, the true story of Mexican lynchings. So, so that, just acknowledging that there is a hidden history regarding Mexicanos um, in the United States, that needs to be known. That would be the first thing. Um, The second thing is for all of us to look at a map of Mexico in the early 1800s. Um, So this would be the map of Mexico before the Mexican-American War, just so that everybody realizes that Mexico went all the way up to the border of Canada. The colonies in our midst, you know, we need to recognize what the United Nations has called the last standing colony of the United States, which is Puerto Rico. I'm also very sensitive to the people of Guam and the Pacific Islands, Um, these are people who many, in many ways, in many cases, are born American citizens, but may not, if they stay on their islands, actually have the possibility or right to vote for president. So for the commander-in-chief that they have to serve, they may not have the right. There's all kinds of conversations about colonial status um, that would be good to know about. The other one is the Chicano movement. What does that mean? What is it all about? Um, how did it come to be? What is a Chicano? How, do you do, how does one person define oneself as a Chicano or not? Next to that would be the Young Lords, where basically um personify the uh, Puerto Rican battle for civil rights in the 1960s and 70s. Another one would be All-in-One, Dolores Huerta, Cesar Chavez, United Farm Workers, and the Great Boycott. For me, the I know everybody calls it the internment. Japanese Americans. I actually call it the imprisonment of Japanese American citizens and their their relationship to detention centers in our midst right now and making that connection. Mm -hmm. Who decides, i.e., the myth of objectivity, this notion that there is a kind of objectivity that we all must adhere to, and the fact that this is something changing as we speak. And then I put Sonia Sotomayor and other kick-ass Latinas, <laughs> which I thought was a kind of interesting topic. And then the final thing that I wrote was actually—I don't know if it's how to categorize this—but to say that we don't have a reason to be fearful. Fear in the United States has never led us to a positive place, and truthfully, whatever we've been most afraid of, we've always gotten through it. Mm-hmm. So our country is changing. There is absolutely
1: nothing to fear. Maria, this is um, such a beautiful, powerful list, and what a note to to end it on. Uh, Maria Hinojosa, who is uh, an award-winning journalist, uh, a pioneer, uh, but also uh, a a deep uh, example of how to uh, weave together this American community with empathy uh, and mindfulness. Uh, Maria, thank you so much for uh, joining us uh, for this podcast.
2: It's been my pleasure, Eric, and thanks for all the work that you do and and the Aspen Institute as well. It's my pleasure.
0: That's Eric Liu speaking with Maria Inahosa. Liu directs the Aspen Institute's Citizenship and American Identity Program. Inahosa is a longtime journalist and is the executive producer and host of NPR's Latino USA and America by the Numbers on PBS. In next week's Extra, we'll hear from David Henry Huang. Huang is a Tony-winning American playwright, screenwriter, and opera librettist. His work includes the plays M. Butterfly, Chinglish, *Yellowface*, and the Broadway musicals Aida and Disney's Tarzan. Submit your top ten list on the website Know.org. And remember, our regular Aspen Ideas To Go episodes that feature on-stage discussions from Aspen Institute events are still being released weekly. The next show will feature public radio host Diane Reem talking about her personal experience with end-of-life issues. Find out more about the podcast at aspenideas.org. You can subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Today's show was produced by our team at the Aspen Institute with music by Poddington Bear. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thank you for listening.